Luke chapter 24 from verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then, as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them like idle tales and they did not believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb and stooping down he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves and he departed, marvelling to, marvelling to himself at what had happened. Now behold, two of them were travelling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was, while they conversed and reasoned, that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained, so that they did not know him. And he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Then he said to them, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Let's pray once more. Gracious God, by your spirit, teach us now, we pray, to behold Christ here and in all the scriptures. Lord, guide us, we ask, for your glory's sake. Amen. There are some scenes in the scripture where I would have loved to be a participant, except that sometimes I'm afraid I know the role I would be taking. 
This is one of them. I would have loved to have been there on the road to Emmaus. Luke's record of this is wonderfully human. It's full of these realistic and colourful touches. It's humorous, it's poignant, it's sweet. We can only consider the first part of it today before we get to uh, Emmaus itself. We need to remember as we study this that taking the Lord Jesus out of the equation, we already know more than the other participants did. We get a, a particular view. We're able to see things happening and to comment on them that at that point they were not able to. And that means that we have perhaps some insights that they lacked even into their behaviour, but it also means that we need to be very careful uh, lest we judge them too harshly. So, a scene is set, a conversation takes place, and a lesson is taught. A scene is set, a conversation takes place, and a lesson is taught. The scene is set very simply, but very clearly. There are two disciples. One of them is called Cleopas, and there's his plus one. We don't know who he or she is. I think the commentators have got up to about six or seven possible suggestions before they all conclude that they really don't know anyway. So we're just going to say it's Cleopas and a friend, a disciple. And they're on their way to this village called Emmaus. We don't know where Emmaus is today, but we do know that it's about seven miles from Jerusalem. Now, let's be generous. Let's say that you know, because they're downcast and they're struggling, let's call that a two-hour walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And they're doing what you would expect them to do after the events of the last few days and hours. They are talking together. And they are reasoning with one another about the things which had happened. They're trying to put it all in their minds. Some of us are more inclined to work things out by talking. They seem to have been doing this amongst themselves. They're wrestling with the details. They're trying to figure out what's actually gone. How do we make sense of all these things? And... I think we would say we're very familiar with this kind of environment. We can imagine ourselves on the road to Emmaus with these two disciples. And Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But he comes, what we say, incognito. They don't know who he is. Their eyes were restrained, we're told, so that they did not know him. Now, it could be that there's a measure of natural restraint in that. After all, they're not expecting the Lord Jesus to rise again from the dead. It's contrary to all opinion. It's contrary to the disciples' expectation. It's contrary to the public instruction. It's contrary to the authorities' agreed line. It's also contrary, as becomes clear, to all their notions and expectations of Messiah. Naturally, they don't expect Jesus to be there. But it seems that there's also something here that is supernatural in the restraint that is imposed upon them. And that seems to be the sense of the language. So there's a supernatural restraint because the resurrection body in Mark 16 and verse 12 is of another form 
Now, it's recognizably Jesus, but in Mark 16, verse 12, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And there's also a divine restraint. There's a divine intention here. Remember, there have been occasions already in Luke's gospel where Christ has not been recognized or the things that have been said by him haven't been understood. And one of the most prominent uh, elements of that, we've quoted it more than once already. Luke 18, verse 34, he said that the Son of Man must fulfill all that is written in the prophets. He will be delivered to the Gentiles, will be mocked and insulted, spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things which were spoken. So the scene is set. Cleopas and his friend. Maybe his wife, maybe his son, maybe another disciple, we're not sure. And they're walking through the heat of the landscape toward Emmaus. They're talking about all of the things that have happened. And Jesus draws alongside and they don't recognize him. For whatever reason, though he is there with them, they don't understand who he is. Whatever else we have to say about Christ and his interactions with these disciples, let us underscore at the beginning the kindness and the compassion of the Lord Jesus. He has risen from the dead. This is the first day of his resurrection reign. And where is he? He's walking in the dust of the earth alongside two troubled Christians. The Lord Jesus himself drew near to these confused, ignorant, foolish, despondent disciples. What would you do with that kind of freedom? Suppose you've been in prison and you've just been set free. Is this the kind of place that you'd go? Is this the kind of service that you would render? Christ has come forth from the grave and his first acts are acts of compassion, kindness, comfort and instruction. That should tell you something about the heart of the Lord Jesus toward us. So the scene is set and now a conversation takes place. Our Lord initiates it and there's some back and forth. What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Some people think the language suggests in some manuscripts that at this point they stand still and look sad. But everything about these people looks sad. And this isn't, this isn't mucking about. This isn't some kind of performance. You know what sadness looks down. You've seen it. Perhaps their eyes are rimmed, red-rimmed because of tears. Their shoulders are hanging down. They're they're dragging their feet through the dust. Their, Their faces are screwed up with misery. They are manifestly unhappy people. And the Lord Jesus says, what are you talking about that's making you look like that? What are you talking about that's making you sound like that? What kind of conversation could prompt such misery? They uh, are then prompted also to greater specificity because when they give one short answer in verse 19, he, he wants, what things? 
Be clear with me. Tell me exactly what is on your heart. And that's where some of the humour comes in. You know, this deliberate naivety on the part of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you the only stranger who doesn't know what's been going on about Jesus of Nazareth? And Jesus of Nazareth, who we know is Jesus of Nazareth, says, what on earth are you talking about? Please explain some more. There's a, there's a sort of a divine irony taking place here. You're meant to be saying this is, this is, there's a, a sort of a holy ridiculousness about this. They're telling this story to the very Jesus that they're not yet believing has risen from the dead. So the Lord is prompting them with these questions. And the response is made. And it begins with an incredulous challenge. Cleopas cannot believe that it's possible to be walking out of Jerusalem under these circumstances and not to know what's been going on over the last few days. Are you out of touch, man? Where have you been? Don't you know? Are you the only person in all of Jerusalem who doesn't know what's been going on in the last few days? You've got your head in in the sand. All Jerusalem is buzzing with these things. Remember the public nature of these events. Darkness doesn't cover the face of the land and people don't recognise it. There have been mobs and crowds. They've been baying for blood. There's been a public spectacle. There's been a public crucifixion. This is all over Jerusalem. There have been earthquakes. Graves have been opened. Are you the only man on the planet who doesn't understand what's been going on in this region in the last few days? What things? Says the man at the centre of the history. Cleopas gives him then an accurate history. The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive and certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said but him they did not see it's not a bad summary of the conversation they've been having up to that point and what can you say about it it's all true as far as it goes it's all true as far as it goes this is the gospel according to Cleopas And it's not really very good news. Now, if you overlap it with, say, a later apostolic declaration of what lies at the heart of the gospel, you can hear a lot of the same notes, strictly speaking. Here's 1 Corinthians 15. Moreover, brothers, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures." 
And then later on, now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. And there's a resurrection-shaped hole in Cleopas's story. He gets so close, doesn't he? We, you, you want him to take that extra step. We went to the tomb. It was empty. Why was it empty, Cleopas? Well, our women went there and they looked inside and they couldn't find him. Why couldn't they find him, Cleopas? Well, there were angels who said that he was risen from the dead. He was alive again. But we couldn't see him with our own eyes. Why couldn't you see him, Cleopas? Because he wasn't there anymore. Everything here, it's, oh, it, it churns up your soul, doesn't it, to read Cleopas speaking like this and not quite joining all the dots. He offers all the cons. Cleopas is good on the cons. He offers a few of the pros, not so many of those. It's quite a dreary record. He was a mighty prophet. Already all in the past tense. Jesus of Nazareth, a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. That's right, Cleopas, he was, wasn't he? You remember what he said and you remember what he did. You remember that wonderful teaching that made people say no one ever spoke like this man. You remember how he healed the sick, how he cast out demons, how he performed other miracles, how he even raised people from the dead. So that the people and even the authorities themselves were forced to acknowledge the might with which he spoke and the power with which he acted. And he was a condemned and crucified criminal. The chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. They put him on a tree. They hung him at Calvary. And everything about his death declared that he was rejected by both Jews and the nations under the curse of almighty God suspended between heaven and earth he took his body down and flung it in the tomb it's a broken hope we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel you go back to Luke's gospel chapters 1 and 2 what do all those early prophecies about the coming of the Christ say he's the redeemer He's the one who's going to ransom God's Israel. Well, that's what we were hoping. Now, that's what the promises said. That's what they said before he was born. That's what we were looking for, but no more. Cleopas got a significant date in there. I mean, again, it's just sort of, it almost beggars our belief. Besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. You almost want to shout at Cleopas at this point, don't you? Didn't you hear? No, this was hidden from them. It's the third day. Cleopas ought to be turning cartwheels. Instead, he's down in the doldrums. You know, we, we know there was something about the third day, but this is it. And still nothing has happened, seems to be what Cleopas is saying. We've got a missing body. Well, we don't know if he's been stolen away or, or what it may be, but he's not where they put him. That grave where they laid him, that now is empty. The angels told us he was alive. I mean, come on, people. If an angel told you something, wouldn't you be inclined to believe it? 
Cleopas, how is it that the angels told the women that he was alive? Well, they're only women, aren't they? Why should we believe them? If Mrs. Cleopas is the other person with him, you can imagine her rolling her eyes, perhaps, at this point. It's all accurate as far as it goes. But it's all cast in shade. He was a mighty prophet. But he's suffered. He's been condemned and crucified. The redemption hasn't happened. It's the third day and no light has dawned. The angels have said that he's alive, but they couldn't find his body. They went to the tomb and it was just what the women had told us, but they still couldn't see him. What a despairing conclusion. We found everything just as it was said. We've got all the data in front of us. But we haven't seen Jesus. We haven't seen his body dead and we haven't seen his body alive. Let us not wonder at the depth of spiritual blindness in this world. If Cleopas can have all of that and still reach the wrong conclusion, do we not now begin at least to understand how needful it is for the Spirit of God to open the eyes of the inwardly blind? Christian, no matter what you imagine yourself to be, no matter how clever you think you are, how wise you believe yourself to be, how well you have been instructed even from your youth up, you do know, don't you, that the reason why you see the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ is because God has opened your eyes. Cleopas didn't get it. He wasn't the only one. The disciples, all of them, have put all this data together and they've reached the conclusion that they really don't know what's going on, but it's all bad. And so a rebuke is issued. Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory. Now remember again that the Lord Jesus on the day of his resurrection has walked out to Emmaus to be with these disciples. He's presenced himself with them. He has appeared in his humanity, risen, on the road to Emmaus. And he's deliberately drawn out of their aching hearts everything that's going on in their souls. There is compassion, there is kindness, and there's compassion and kindness still here. The Lord Jesus has given Cleopas the, effort, the opportunity to get all these things off his chest. Get it all out in the open, Cleopas. What is on your heart? What is on your mind? Notice now that the Lord Jesus does not indulge Cleopas' sinful misery. We can be very good at the first couple of bits. And then we seem to climb down into the muck and we say, well, who can know and what can we do? And I suppose we'll all just have to suffer together. Brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus did not indulge Cleopas's misery. He corrected his misunderstanding. Cleopas should have known better 
in company with all the others. Our Lord Jesus was disappointed with Cleopas. We feel sympathy with him, and it's evident that Christ did too, because he's already there as well, and he's going to deal with their blindness and with their sorrow, but he's not going to pretend that it is right that with the truth before their eyes, they should be believing the lie. Our Saviour expects his truth to address our issues, to deal with our doubts, to address our fears. We are not to indulge doubts, unbelief and ignorance. It is to be brought to the, to the scriptures, to the touchstone of truth. Foolish ones, dull. How is it, says our Lord, that you don't understand it you are slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken i wonder if there's at least a hint of deliberate contrast there we couldn't see it why didn't you believe it maybe for clear and friend seeing is believing for the lord jesus christ believing is better than seeing you have everything that you need to know the truth of what has taken place. You should have grasped, says Jesus, that Messiah's atoning death is the way to his heavenly majesty. You should have known that the cross comes before and leads to the crown. You should have understood how salvation is accomplished. You see, the sense seems to be that in some way or to some degree, Cleopas and his friend and the others who are disciples at this time, that they bought into this notion that the glory of Messiah therefore excludes any suffering and that the majesty that belongs to him and the redemption that he accomplishes needs to be immediately seen in some spectacular way in this present world so that perhaps the Romans are thrust out. That's what the disciples were still asking in Acts chapter 1. Is, is now when Israel gets the kingdom back? Their whole notion is so worldly. And therefore, when they think of sufferings, they think that's the end of the... We wanted him to have glory, but he's died on the cross. That's the end of the road. There's nothing else to look forward to. And the glory that we'd anticipated, we don't see it. Pilate is still in his judgment hall. The Roman soldiers are still in our land. The walls of Jerusalem are still broken down. Where's the majesty of Messiah? Christ emphasizes in his response to them in this rebuke the necessity of these things. Remember Luke chapter 18, he had always underscored it. The things that are written concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. He will be delivered to the Gentiles. He will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. It is necessary that everything that is spoken about Messiah should come to pass. They think that if he suffered, there can be no glory. Christ says, no, the suffering is the precursor to the glory. This is the path that Messiah must go. 
All the information is available to you, he says. But you've been selective. You've been ignorant. You've become confused. And you're walking along now in the misery of your own unbelief. And it shouldn't be that way. What a mercy that verse 27 follows on from that. Now this is the bit I'd like to be there for. It's typical of us, isn't it? Yeah, I don't want the rebukes, I don't want the conversation, I don't want my ignorance to be exposed, but, but this is the bit I want to hear. A lesson is taught. I'm going to call this heavenly hermeneutics. Hermeneutics are principles of interpretation when we're handling the word of God. If you want it more simply, Jesus is going to join the dots. Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, we didn't have a set of scrolls in a backpack and pull them out one after the other. But he might have said something like, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And the word of the living God brought light into the darkness and the chaos. The triune God was there at the beginning. And he might have gone on then explaining that God had said, let us make man in our image. And when mankind fell because Eve took the fruit and she ate and then she gave some to Adam and he was standing by and rather than acting as God's man in the garden, he also took and he ate. And out of the muck and the filth of the curse, God said that the seed of the woman would come who would trample upon the head of the serpent. And in this fallen, evil world in which all the beauty has been marred and man himself has scarred the image of God in his soul, God promised that one would come forth from a woman who would redeem his people. And the Lord, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, expounds to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now bear in mind, if there are a few miles out of Jerusalem at this point, let's say there are 90 minutes left. So that doesn't mean that he works his way through everything from Genesis through to Malachi and gives them an exhaustive treatment. He traces out from what is technically called the proto-evangel, the first good news, the first promise, those covenants of the promise, how God in his mercy has been pleased to appoint and then to produce one who will be the saviour of his beloved people. So he's talking about the sacrifices, 
He's talking about the kings. He's talking about the temple. He's talking about David. He's talking about Solomon. He's talking about the, the testimony of the prophets. He's talking about uh, Zechariah and the, the fountain open for sin and for uncleanness. He's talking about Isaiah's servant of the Lord. He's probably dealing with Isaiah 53. All those high points, all those obvious bits to us now. Well, of course this is talking about Jesus Messiah. Obviously this is about the Christ. See how the Father puts him to grief, but he makes his work to prosper in his hands. Yes, he is crucified and he is punished amongst the transgressors. Yes, they bury him with the rich in his death, but he shall see the travail, the labour of his soul, and he shall be satisfied. He's there in Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But you, O oh God, have heard my cry. And he's expounding this to them. He's explaining it. He's preaching it. He's telling them what it means. Heavenly hermeneutics and, and this evangelical exegesis. Read Christ back into these portions of the word of God. And he's doing it from the whole of the scriptures, the entire Old Testament. A complete picture that is at once selective but comprehensive. And he's doing it all in less than about two hours. And it's the things concerning himself. What a sermon. Jesus preaching Jesus. The Christ declaring the Christ. Wouldn't you want to know something of what he says? All these things that the suffering goes before the glory. You cannot have the Messiah suffering and not glorified. And you cannot have the glory without the suffering. The fullness of Messiah's work. This is how he accomplishes redemption. This was God's purpose from the beginning. Must the Christ, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? How could he not suffer? And how could he not be glorified? This is what Messiah is. This is who he is. This is what he does. This is what God has always told you. And it's lying there. It's not even buried so much. It's on the surface of your Bible. Because he was the sufferer doesn't mean he can't be the saviour. It's because he was the sufferer that he is the saviour. And he must rise and he must be glorified, and he must reign, and he will deliver his people from their sins. He has exhausted the curse. Don't you wish you could have heard Christ dealing with Abraham's covenant? So Abraham had a seed, Cleopas, and that seed was one, ultimately. And in that seed, Abraham himself was blessed. It's Christ's own commentary on Galatians chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 15. Remember, this was his book. How did the Lord Jesus know who he was? Because he read his Bible. How did he know what he would do? How was it that as a 12-year-old boy, he said to his parents in Jerusalem, did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Because his ear had been awakened, opened, to hear what God had spoken. And Christ's own book had informed him, and it should inform us. 
And you and I might be saying, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful to hear this heavenly hermeneutics, this evangelical exegesis? Wouldn't it be fantastic if we could just hear what Jesus himself says about where he is in all the Bible? You do. The wonderful thing is that you're not cut off from this because Christ's hermeneutics are the apostles' hermeneutics. The apostles, with their eyes opened by the Spirit of Christ, that's how they read their Old Testament. So when you read Galatians, you're reading your Bible the way Christ would have you read your Bible. When you read Hebrews, you're reading your Bible the way Christ would have you read your Bible. Still we need to dig into it, still we need to understand it, but we are people who have been given the Holy Spirit who takes and reveals the things that belong to Jesus Christ. We are inheritors of the apostolic understanding. The New Testament is the interpretation of the Old. The Old predicts, points, the new fulfills and reveals. We do not need to stand on the road to Emmaus. We have inherited the road to Emmaus. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the apostolic understanding. We have the mind of Jesus Christ. The men that he had trained and taught and whose eyes he would open are the ones who have transmitted to us a right understanding of the scriptures. I'd still like to be there. But I can hear what Jesus Christ has said in the New Testament. Do you pray that the Holy Spirit would help you? How do you read your Old Testament? Let's go back a step. Do you read your Old Testament? Now, we know... That even Peter said regarding the New Testament writings that there are some difficult things. Paul was not always clear. He needed to be worked at. He needed to be examined. Some of the things that Paul had said were hard to understand, difficult to grasp. Perhaps there was some, something in our remaining sinfulness that, that finds it difficult to take or something in the cloudiness of our minds that finds it difficult to grasp. We can say the same thing about the Old Testament as well. But please, please, let us not be the kind of congregation or the kind of Christians who avoid the Old Testament. It's Christ's book. And we need to learn. This is one of the reasons why we read it through Sunday by Sunday. Seeking to see something of Jesus Christ in it. So do we pray that as we read the Old Testament and the New, we would see Christ as he saw himself. That we would see him how he is and where he is and when he is. Sometimes people today say, oh, you're finding Jesus where he isn't. Well, I'd rather see Christ where he isn't than miss him where he is. <coughs> I want to read the whole Bible with my eyes open for Jesus the Christ. I want to read through Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers 
and Deuteronomy and say, ah, there are the signposts, there are the pointers, there are the types, there are the shadows, there are the hints, there are the needs. That as I work my way through, as I see prophets and priests and kings, and the one who will be the prophet and the priest and the king, as I see sacrifices, that I see one who will be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When I see the failures of mere mortal men, I will remember that there is one coming who is both God and man, two distinct natures and one person forever who will be for his people everything that they failed to be. In the shadows, I see Christ. In the gaps, I see Christ. In the hints of colour, I see the first indications of Messiah. In the outlines, I recognise his contours. In the pictures, I begin to discern his beautiful face. And I see Jesus as he saw himself in the pages of God's book. Brothers and sisters, let's read our Bibles eagerly and thoroughly, looking for Jesus as the Christ of God. And let's pray that the Holy Spirit would open the eyes of the blind. That's why you've got to say, I think, that verse 16, there's a supernatural restraint upon them. Jesus has now preached what would, I think, have been the finest sermon of the New Covenant era. <laughs> and Cleopas and his friend, who already have trusted that Jesus would be the Messiah, still don't understand who the Messiah is and what he does. Remember, we've talked about faithfulness without real faith. Jesus has joined the dots but it still hasn't clicked. Go down to verse 32 just briefly. Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? By the end of this conversation, clear passage friend is saying, the darkness has lifted. The gloom has been dispelled. The misery has been taken away. We're excited. We're delighted. We're full now of anticipation. We've begun to understand what is taking place. But as yet, their eyes are not open. We don't have time now this morning to reach that point. But remember the compassion of Jesus. He himself drew near these despondent and doubting disciples. Not to tease them, not to tantalize them, not to frustrate them, not to confuse them, but so that they might come to know Jesus of Nazareth as the Christ of God who suffered for his people and rose again in triumph over the grave. In their despondency, their comfort is at hand. In their distress, mercy is close. And within a few more breaths, everything will become clear. Brothers and sisters, when we may be downcast and distressed, 
when we may be despondent and ignorant, when we have become prey to our sinful doubts and fears, when we are crippled by an unrighteous unbelief, Christ makes clear. He will show us himself. And if you have yet to see him, if you have yet to see him in the scriptures of God, if you have yet to see him as his word is preached, if you have yet to see him for the saving of your souls, he is ready to be found by you. Ask that God would open your eyes, that you might behold Christ for salvation. And then, with others of his people, let us search our Bibles, that our doubts may be lifted, our fears dismissed, our unbelief blown apart. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to have entered into his glory? Amen.